Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Bob Carter is one of the world's most respected and recognized voices in fundraising and philanthropy. Over the last four decades, he has guided major resource development efforts around the world, served as a longtime CEO at Ketchum, a senior advisor at Omnicom, a board chair at major institutions, and since 2011, as CEO of Carter. He's a former chair of AFP and, in 2020, received the rare distinction of the Chair's Award for Outstanding Service presented by the Association of Fundraising Professionals. We caught up with Bob at his home in Florida. I have to start by asking you about your baritone ukulele. So you play that and you play a banjo. How yeah, long have first... you been playing instruments like that? Well, I, I actually, I started when I was, uh, I think I was six or seven years old. And my older brother was playing uh, a uh, Spanish guitar, an acoustical type thing. And mm. I loved it. But my arms were too short to play that guitar. <clears throat> so in my father's wisdom, he said, well, you can play the slide guitar, the steel guitar. So uh, that's why I started taking steel guitar lessons when I was six or seven, did it for three or four years. And uh, my brother and I actually got reasonably good for kids. And I was a singer too. I used to sing uh, Elvis and uh, uh, Hank Williams, a senior, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and a few others. And we, we became part of a, an amateur show called the Stardust Review. And it was children eight, from 8 to 18 who went around and played in the uh, veterans' hospitals after World War II in Korea. And they were all full, of course. And uh, we had jugglers. We had uh, a sword swallower. Um, we had all kinds <laughs> of acrobats and some terrible um, singers. And but the the veterans loved it. They would cry and clap and all of that. And it was really we were on the radio on Veterans National Radio a couple of times. And it was really uh, my father was big on getting us on stage and having a stage presence. It was the same era wherein he started to make us go to all the optimist clubs, uh, enter the speaking contests. And uh, boy, my brother and I hated that, but <laughs> we had to do it. And then it became okay. We didn't mind standing up in front of a strange group of people, which when I look back on it was really has served me well over time. Uh, just, I never knew what stage fright was, actually. And uh, I feel bad for people who get it. And I understand it, but I, I kind of, I, I never had it. And uh, my brother, uh, one incident, we were at Fort Howard in Maryland, uh, down on the water. It's now closed. Uh, but anyhow, uh, we were playing. I was singing Your Cheatin' Heart by <laughs> Hank Williams. And uh, my brother's uh, guitar amplifier chord broke. It made a bunch of noise and then broke. And he took his instrument and walked off stage and left me alone. And I'm eight years old, right? So I just keep singing and playing my, my thing and doing that. And that taught me a big lesson, too, that the show had to go on no matter what. I couldn't. 
I couldn't join my older brother and get off the stage, even though every instinct told me, get out of here. I don't have my big brother with me anymore. So anyhow, I had lots of fun as a kid doing that. It sounds like uh, it was a real performance family. What what was your father's story what, that he decided to put you on on stage like that? Well, he, he he desperately wished that he had done something. He had a pretty good voice, so he was always singing. And uh, to my mother's chagrin, you know, he was very loud. And he uh, he when we started taking guitar lessons, he bought himself a ukulele, and he would play with us. And uh, it was kind of funny because he wouldn't let us mix uh, miss practicing because he wanted to play his ukulele too. So it was. It became this fun, sort of fun family thing that we we did together, and uh, you no, know, that was it. And he always said, "Good leaders will be able to get on stage," and uh, that was part of. When I speak on leadership, which I've done uh, recently with, actually with AFP Lead, I, um, the CEO of Plan International, and I did a thing on Lead. Um, I make reference to the fact that, uh, and I've told people, my first mentor was my father, hmm. and. Uh, he, he was taught me a lot about what leaders were, were like and should be like, compassion and all that sort of thing. So. Was he a performer, too, or was he, he finding no, that thrill was, by watching you perform? He was an executive. He was a business executive in the metals business mm-hmm. and a great salesperson. Uh, and he, he taught us about sales and all that. But he loved music. He just enjoyed all. And so I grew up listening to a lot of country western. Uh, I listen to pop music all the time. Uh, I can still, I can, it, it amazes my wife that I know all the words to the 1950s rock and roll songs, but my older brother had all those 45s. And so I just, you know, I was like a sponge then. You know, I'm a little kid, I'm six or eight years old, and I'm just listening to everything. Uh, but we listen to all kinds of music, a little bit of classic and all that. And then, Early on, uh, my grandmother, my dad's mom, who lived with us, but grandmother and father, we lived in one big house, so it was really great. Two kitchens to choose from, two places to get solace. Uh, we always had, my brother had escape plans to get away from our parents if we needed to. Um, but my grandmother was big on taking us to uh, musicals um, when they either came to Baltimore or once a year up in New York. So we got exposed to musical theater early on. Um, I think the first one I ever saw was Forrest Tucker in Music Man. And it was a huge, it was a huge eye opener. I was a little kid and the color, the dancing, the the way it all came together. I was in awe. I could have, I could have seen it a hundred times and never got tired of it. I still, I still watch Music Man whenever it's on, you know, TV or, or you know, something like that. What's I your favorite it. song from the Music Man? Oh, I love Lida Rose because I ended up singing Barbershop when mm-hmm. I was in high school. I, I was the leader. I had the pitch pipe. So I was the leader of the, uh, it was called the Ipso Factos. And uh, at Boys Latin School, of course, everything had a Latin name. Don't ask me what it means. I've long forgotten. But uh, yeah, we had a barbershop group and we sang Whiffin, the Yale Whiffenpoof songs. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, I loved Lida Rose. I'm home again, Rose, blah, blah, blah. I, I thought you were going to start quoting uh, that's uh, uh, pool, the capital P that rhymes, you know, that guy. I don't mind that <laughs> either. That's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. But I could, 
I could sing along better with the barbershop harmony. So, wow. Um, but now you were doing all these amazing things with your parents, uh, I guess, at a young age and your brother. Then, of course, you went off to school. You were, it sounds like you were a Baltimore boy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, we lived right outside of Baltimore on, a, on kind of a gentleman farm. Uh, <clears throat> Dad didn't work the farm, but we had, we had a few cows. We had goats. We had uh, sheep that we sold every spring and chickens and, you know, that sort of thing. But we went to school in the city. My brother and I went to a boys' Latin school, and we could either ride the train or the Greyhound bus. And so, like, we uh, we milked cows before we went to school, but then we had some help in the afternoon so we could play sports and things. So we get up early. We got up at 5.30 every day, and, you know, milked some cows, and then came in and had breakfast and, and fed chickens and all that. Then we came in and had breakfast, then went to school. It sounds so like I got to school at 8.15, I had been up. I, I felt like I'd been up all night, usually, and uh, lots of falling asleep up against the cow while you're milking it and you know, that sort of thing. What about your mom and all this? What was her, her role in the household? It doesn't sound like she was off in the performances with you. What, uh, uh, no, what mom was, did she have? Mom was kind of a, an observer, and uh, mom was the one who uh, – mom was a very traditional mom. She wanted to keep everything okay. She was the peacemaker. She was the, uh, you know, kind of the source of if you had a boo-boo, mom was there and, you know, that sort of thing. Very traditional. My mother never drove a car. Um, she just didn't do that. And neither did her mother. Uh, very traditional, uh, I would say, uh, born in the 20s and 30s, um, American mom. And but dad was the activist, the, mo the most impactful two men in my early life were my father and grandfather. And my grandfather was an amateur boxer. Um, he was also a kind of a, a tool maker, tool and die maker for screw machines. Uh, having dropped out of school in the third grade, got thrown out of school, actually, in the third grade for smoking out the one room schoolhouse in Elk Ridge. He, he put his boot over the chimney so they could get the day off. And that was in, that was in the third grade. And he was he was expelled from education. He never went back to school. So he became a shop boy at a place called Davis and Hempel, which was a pencil manufacturing company when he was uh, nine or 10 years old. And he was just a cleanup kid. And uh, child labor was, you know, OK in the day. And uh, that company became with the spinning machines, they became screw machine manufacturers. They made copper, they made brass and all kinds of screws for manufacturing and stuff. Well, my grandfather became a master machinist over the years. He worked there 56 years. Uh, and he went around the country and trained other tool and die makers. And, you know, he had a nice career. He was always employed during the recession, took care of the family, the extended family during the recession and so on. So he was seen to be sort of the family patriarch. Uh, he also was a fierce competitor as a boxer. He was he only weighed 135 pounds. He fought Bantamweight. And uh, it was really interesting because most of his friends who were boxers were black. It was an African-American thing in the communities. And so on Friday nights, because he had a television and many of them didn't, they would all come to our house. And uh, he'd have all his boxer friends watching the Friday night fights brought to you by Gillette. 
I still remember the jingles. And uh, my brother and I just loved it. Uh, that was that was a big, exciting thing. And Anyhow, that must have had an influence on you in terms of the sports that you started engaging in. Is that yeah. right? I'm, yeah, very much. Uh, you know, we were out back playing ball. My dad had been a semi-pro baseball player, played for national championships, semi-pro teams from the area. And he was kind of a ringer. Corporations used to have uh, softball teams back then, softball leagues. And so uh, the Calvert Whiskey plant is always recruiting him as a, quote, employee to go play <laughs> for that. He was a really good baseball player. But uh, he, you know, he went into the service. He enlisted the day after Pearl Harbor, along with a couple of buddies. And uh, he went to boot camp and he came back, married my mother. And then he went away for two and a half years. He never saw my brother uh, for those two and a half years. So he, he was in the South Pacific. He was became a chief petty officer, first class, and was the speaker for Admiral Lee in the South Pacific, mm-hmm. which is where he got a lot of his leadership uh, observations and things. He talked about the great leaders of the Pacific theater and uh, how those generals behaved because he, he was with them as a speaker for the general. Back in the day, they didn't, uh, they didn't record things. Uh, my father was new shorthand and uh, so when the admiral would give a command during the battles, uh, my father repeated the command out loud. So it was clarified over the speaker system. And he would also write it down. So there was no doubt about what the admiral had just made, the command he had just made. He was also in charge, along with the chaplain for burials at sea, which is an area he could never talk about. Hmm. It, it sounds like these all these people, but particularly these two men had such an enormous influence on you in so many ways. They did. Good and bad. Uh, what was the uh, the best of it and the worst of it? The best of it was the, uh, uh, it was a combination of you play to win and you play fair. And the fair play and sportsmanship concept was huge. And there were no corners cut. Uh, you didn't you didn't try to uh, to trick anybody. You just played well, played hard, played fair. The downside was it was a little brutal. And uh, if you have a boxer as a grandfather, and I have some pretty funny stories about him as a civilian taking on people, and because he was so small, they had no idea that he was a boxer. And he was, I mean, he could take on a 220 pound guy and have him on the on the ground in two seconds. Um, but anyhow, uh, kind of the, the, uh, the relentless desire to push yourself to be the best and to do all those things, you know, that became a little bit of an issue with me in my, in my life Hmm. and, uh, the fear of failure and, and not understanding that failure was okay as long as you recover from it. Uh, so that's, that's what I learned through my own life and, you know, getting some counseling and things at various points, which I very much believe in. So, Well, you, you went from that kind of, it sounds like hyper performance, very physical and yeah. very fun. Uh, yeah, the uh, arts, life. we had the arts going, we had working right. on the farm. My father, we did hand dug fence, fence posts, holes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he always would come out and say, it's great to see you guys building character. That's what mm-hmm. he called it. And he built a lot of character around that place. <laughs> for this. 
So you went from that environment, country, city, all of that, to then, uh, I, I guess you went to Johns Hopkins, and yeah. then went into teaching originally. So what? How how did yeah. you decide to go and become an English teacher? Well, I was I was a coach too. I you know played uh, Division One lacrosse, a couple championship teams, all state high school player, and you know all that stuff. So I really loved coaching, and. Uh, so I want to try that and to do that, you know, and I also I was uh, I loved English. I was a I was a political science major, but I had minors in French and English and in particular British literature. So I taught American and British literature at the high school level with an honors uh, an honors class in Shakespeare. And Hamlet and Macbeth were my two specialties. I have a, a bunch of collections back here, some of which are the books that I use to teach and so on. Um, but that, you know, I, I, I had a hero in, uh, in high school who was a, uh, is really interesting guy, boys Latin. He was an economics professor or teacher, and, uh, he was also an abstract artist and he was our football coach and his ability to work and love all of those parts of life, all of those different things. Cause a lot of people have the image, well, if you're a jock. If you play sports, you can't be the other. And I saw this amazing balance in this man when I was when I was younger. And I said, I want that. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, some time ago, I talked about uh, accidental mentors. Uh, he never really mentored me, but I observed him. So he's an accidental mentor to me. I, I wanted to emulate some of that behavior. So I said, oh, it's okay. I'm not strange because I like poetry, but I also am a fierce competitor on the athletic field. That's all okay. And uh, you have to remember back in the 50s and some of the early 60s, that was not as widely accepted as it might might be today. Right. You, you had kind of had to make this choice between being a macho jock or, uh, or engaging in the arts or something mm-hmm. like that. So I kind of... I was I was fortunate. I was able to balance all of that in my life and show appreciation and enjoy enjoyment for all of those areas and aspects of what I think are make for a joyful life. But you didn't stay a long time in teaching. You No, I didn't. <laughs> That's a whole other story. Yeah, I uh yeah, I love teaching and uh I, I had so much fun uh with that and in some ways, had I been able to make a living at that, I, my my opening salary is $4,200 a year for teaching five classes, coaching two sports, advising 10 kids, and whatever else they had a school ask me to do. Mm. It was a little bit like, uh, you know, child labor uh, practices. And um, I was chopping firewood on the family farm on the weekends to make money, and I was tutoring French at night to make money. I was pretty fluent in French, fortunately. And, you know, one night I was grading papers at one o'clock in the morning and I graded everything. I, I didn't skip anything. I was taught not to do that. And I just looked at myself and I said, is this the way it's going to be for the rest of my life? And, uh, you know, then I went to a year later or so in my second year of teaching, um, I, uh, well, let me let me go back a little bit. My life changed uh, one afternoon in my first fall of teaching at Boys Latin when the head of school walked into my office and said, Bob, the Board of Trustees has just decided to start a development office here, and they pretty unanimously think you're the right person to do it. 
And I said, literally, my first words out of my mouth, his name was Jack Williams, a legendary head of school. And I said, Mr. Williams, does it pay more? And he said, I can give you a few more dollars. And I said, I'm your guy. And, <laughs> and that changed my life. That afternoon, I look on that, it was about, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I was sitting by myself, probably grading papers or getting ready to coach somebody you know, on the athletic field. And, and my whole life changed then. So he said, you go find out what it means because I don't know what they want either. So I went up and down the East Coast and I, I interviewed with uh, other schools that had fundraising programs, uh, Lawrenceville, some others. And I came back and wrote a plan. You know, I was all by myself and you know, I did an annual giving fund for the parents. We raised $2,500 and that was a success, which was half of my salary anyhow, over half of my salary. And uh, things went from there. The next fast forward the next year, I'm I'm uh, at a American Alumni Council conference in New York. The head of school said, you've got to go to conferences and learn about stuff. So I'm of course, I end up in a bar next to the conference center. And uh, these people start talking to me sitting at the bar and they were fundraisers from Johns Hopkins and uh, serendipitous. Um, we had a great conversation and they found out I was a lacrosse player from Hopkins. I was now a fundraiser at Boys Latin, uh, a year into fundraising. And so within uh, 14, 15 months, they hired me to go to Johns Hopkins. So my school teaching career ended after two, two years. And I became a fundraiser at Johns Hopkins. I was associate annual giving director. But one of the interesting things that happened was I, I became a writer for the president. And mm -hmm. there were presidents uh, that I wrote for, but... The one with the name reputation is, is uh, Milton Eisenhower. So I wrote proposals and speeches uh, for him, and he liked my writing. And uh, so I, when he would have alumni meetings and some of his trips, I would go with him, and uh, I'd have all of his remarks ready. And uh, and if there was a volunteer, I did the volunteer remarks and things like that. And that really uh, changed my perspective on what the possibilities were with this fundraising thing. And uh, sooner or later, I, I, in my annual giving role, I, uh, I did some things because our, my boss was away. I, I did some things in annual giving that worked uh, because nobody was telling me what to do. And, uh, you know, sometimes the best mentor leaves you alone and your best boss leaves you alone. So I was free to make mistakes and they didn't all work, but a lot of them did just changing timing on things and just using some logic. Well, I, the big deal I did was I reversed the phonathons. The phonathons used to be a cleanup thing for all the deadheads. And so I said, we're not going to do that. We're going to call the people who gave us money and ask them to increase. It worked. It was just human nature to me because I, I saw all these depressed people calling uh, deadheads and they got more depressed and they drank more beer and all that kind of stuff at the <laughs> Anyhow, I'm, I'm going on about this a bit, but um, I was at Hopkins uh, for a number of years. I got recruited to go to Gilman School, another elite prep school in Baltimore, and run a campaign for them for two years as assistant headmaster. Then Hopkins came and kind of bought me back to be chief advancement officer for engineering and arts and sciences. And then we brought a company called Ketchum in to help us. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
I say the rest is kind of history because after the $100 million campaign, which back in the mid-70s was a huge campaign, um, they recruited me to go to Ketchum. And David Ketchum uh, was the primary recruiter. And that's oh. sort of my yeah, I have to ask you about about that. But first, you, you just glossed over a hundred million dollar campaign. That that was a big goal. It was. It was the biggest one in in America at the time. Uh, that was and the shortest time frame to complete a campaign. We did that in uh, three years, and uh, that was back when you know wages were. My wage salary was like fifteen thousand dollars, and. So if you put it in context, I don't know what the numbers would be today, but it's it's probably a billion dollar campaign done in three years today, something like that. And and so case uh, case had come into being, Council for Advancement and Support of Education. So they asked us, uh, five of us from the Johns Hopkins team, to go on the road. And so we did I think five major cities, like Chicago, New York, L.A., uh, Houston, or Dallas. And uh, we did a, a one-day seminar on how we did that to other higher education case members. Mm -hmm. But Johns Hopkins did the largest first uh, campaign by a comprehensive university of $100 million in the country back then. And now, of course, they do five to seven billion at a clip and that sort of right. thing. But we had 23 fundraisers, which was huge at the time. And now they have 300 and some, uh, of course. When when you mentioned then you you got to know the people at Ketchum and presumably Ketchum was advising yeah. on the campaign that was also yes. a big thing for Ketchum wasn't wasn't that really yeah. in the days of resident council? It was and we had uh, because we didn't have regional fundraisers uh, we had as many as five uh, Ketchum professionals full time who mm -hmm. set up offices in major cities like New York Chicago L A and so on to create uh, campaigns on a regional basis with alumni and grateful patients, because we were working with the hospital as well, uh, because we didn't have staff to do that. So they were our staff. And then we had one senior advisor who was in residence on the Homewood campus, main campus. But um, they had five other consultants who were assisting us in setting up those offices. I was assigned to the, uh, I did all the faculty and staff campaigns plus the uh, alumni campaigns uh, that were done in New York. So mm -hmm. I was on the train a lot from uh, Baltimore to New York um, in those now, days. That, that resident council model, uh, I know, then went through a, kind of a rough patch. And was that around yeah. the time that you decided to, to join Ketchum? First of all, I should ask, you went to Ketchum, uh, but you didn't, you didn't really explain how, how that came about. You told us about David Ketchum. That's pretty remarkable. And Ketchum, for those who don't know, was, I mean, was the biggest, the biggest firm, the most prestigious firm in the world, I believe, at the and time. We had 200, 200 consultants at the right. time. And uh, David Ketchum was the senior officer on the Hopkins account. It was the biggest account they'd ever had. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he paid close attention to it. And and he liked my work and uh, we got along well. He knew I was a writer. Um, it's interesting because he also knew I spoke French fluently. And he uh, they were about to open an operation in Canada at the time. Uh, yes. And so there, things were sort of falling into place. And you know, I, was a, I was sort of a bright young guy and I worked cheap. And so <laughs> you know, why not recruit this guy? 
So that 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 was another moment. You know, the moment when Jack Williams, the head of Boys Latin, asked me to take over or create their first development office was a game changer. Meeting the people in the bar in New York changed my perspective and got me to Hopkins. And then being recruited away from Hopkins by the CEO of the largest fundraising company in the world at the time uh, changed my trajectory as well. So I did uh, I did a combination of things at Ketchum back then. I was primarily, I was a resident director. So I ran campaigns, one for uh, Chatham College in Pittsburgh, uh, but I ran a big campaign for the University of Houston as a resident director. But my largest success, my third campaign and last resident direction assignment was Children's Hospital in Cincinnati mm. and did the centennial campaign for them for a new research wing and all kinds of stuff. That was an enormous success. And I was uh, I was in the middle of that one. And it got a lot of uh, national press because Children's Hospital Medical Center is one of the premier premier pediatric research places in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I came away from that. Uh, David Ketchum brought me back into uh, Pittsburgh as his executive assistant. He said, step down. And a guy named Bob Thompson became the CEO and I was assistant to him. And uh, what I did was sales basically, as well as, as work with him on the Canadian enterprises. And uh, so I got to do some of the international work early on which was intriguing. I loved it, loved the Canadian connection. And uh, I got exposed to all the national clients at the time. So, you know, oh, I forgot. One of my first training assignments was in Grand Rapids on the Gerald Ford Library. Oh, sure. So I got to work with Jerry Ford when I was first with Ketchum. And that was a that was a real experience. He was just a wonderful human being. And, you know, except for, you know, falling and hitting his, hitting his head around, he was really a nice guy. And, pretty easy to get along with. And he, you know, was trying to do the right things. And I just earned, he earned a lot of respect from all of us uh, about the way he did his fundraising and how we could help him. A very ethical guy. Uh, so I, you know, Jay, I've been so fortunate in my career to get exposed to really good people. And uh, uh, they are, uh, there are a lot of names that you wouldn't recognize from old Ketchum. There were senior officers there. And but their voices were they still resonate with me. I, I remember what they said. I re- and it's interesting when people say, um, uh, you know, I like what you had to say. I realized that they're not all my words. I'm I'm, uh, I'm in my own voice. I'm articulating things I heard from some of those voices as many as 35 and 40 years ago. Uh, there were true truisms. They were. Um, and Carlton Ketchum, the original founder, the founder of Ketchum, I got to, you know, have lunch a couple of times with him before he died. Because when they when they brought me to Pittsburgh, I took over his office, which by then was just a real tiny. He was a very humble man, uh, very tiny office there. And I loved it because of the history. I just felt like here I'm sitting in, you know, Carlton Ketchum's office, one of the icons of all of fundraising in America. But I had a couple of conversations with him about uh, the business and about things. And I just used one of his quotes the other day with our team. And it was, uh, you know, I was talking about pro bono work with him. And he said, I think you should do a pro bono job once to one client every year. He said, if we can't give it away as professionals, nobody else will. And he said, there are people who deserve counsel who will never afford it. 
And he said, pick one out in your community and give them the boost that they need. And I still believe that. I think that's what we should do. Uh, sometimes I do it because I've, I've served on a lot of boards, so I do it as a board member. Uh, but mm -hmm. other times I've just, uh, frankly, out of the blue, called a, uh, a charity that's struggling and said, uh, I'd like to help you out. And uh, they kind of never forget it. And I don't yeah. forget it either. I, I want to ask you more about that later, because sometimes people don't know what to do with a volunteer, which I'm sure is something that you've experienced uh, quite yeah. a bit in your life. Yeah. But but before we go there, you you had jumped right into the soup at Ketchum. I mean, doing these big projects, but Ketchum itself uh, was going through a period when the face of fundraising, especially resident council over that period of time was was kind of altering. Um, yeah, it was changing. It was changing. I remember, uh, Jay, during that period, there were a couple of us who were kind of the uh, revolutionaries at the time for Ketchum because mm -hmm. it was a pretty stuffy place inside. Um, and, you know, we didn't see we didn't see the world exactly the way our mentors did. Uh, so we, we made uh, a real push at one point, three of us. And I'll name the names, Bill Carlton, Elliot Oshry and I. And we were all about the same ages. Uh, and different characters, but we, we had lots of conversations about we know how to do this and they don't. And uh, of course, in a, an older agency, that's that can be the kiss of death. So we decided we would do it together. We knew they couldn't get rid of all three of us. Um, but we made the pitch for periodic counseling and to do away with resident. And it didn't happen that day. But over time, we ground them down. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we were, uh, Elliot was a chief supervisor, and Bill and I were two of the leading salespeople in the company. And frankly, we started selling periodic counseling and bringing them home, and they couldn't fight it because it was good money. So we we bypassed, you know, the permission part, mm -hmm. and uh, we had to get a little forgiveness. But once they saw the revenue model worked. They said, well, I guess we can try that. And uh, <laughs> we fast forward a number of years later. Uh, I have, I abolished it when I became the CEO. Uh, and one of the reasons wasn't wasn't because it wasn't still making some money. And CCS, you know, it still does a lot of that. But uh, getting good people to be away from their homes and families the way we had been for periods of time. It's not going to work anymore. You know, the worker was changing. The, the professional was changing. And we had to change with that. And uh, I had documented how much wasted time there was in resident direction. I used to have to look for things to do sometimes because I was there eight to 10 hours a day. And the campaign, you know, had peaks and valleys. And uh, so there's some days and weeks where I, uh, the vice president and I at the University of Houston would go play golf. And uh, he knew I wasn't busy, but he wanted me there when I when I was needed. Uh, but they didn't they didn't have any other model to work from. All they'd ever done was resident direction. So anyhow, that's a long way of saying yes. It, it was way overdue in my view, uh, and I've never gone back to that with any of the companies I've been I've been leading or been a part of. So, in the process of that uh, your work, Ketchum's work, but also the field it must have been injecting uh, that professionalism into the office itself. So when you said that at Hopkins, you didn't have that field staff. Well, today, of course, Hopkins has an enormous 
uh, staff there and, and around the country. So, and that's true of uh, most of the major universities and many other institutions. So the things yeah. that were essential about having that resident council, that field staff may not have been as important later, but it, it probably wouldn't have been possible had places like Ketchum not given that example and oh, that they, training. They did it. In the early days, one of Ketchum's biggest clients were YMCA's, uh, and, I'm sorry, United Ways, YMCA's, but United Ways all around America. So they would go in, they would take a professional director, they would take a PR director who was the writer, and then they would have an office manager, uh, which would uh, set up the office. And that meant buying paper clips, buying you know everything. And they would run a United Way for, I think, 15 or 16 weeks, pack up everything and go back and go home. And the United Ways of America were uh, in small communities, couldn't afford a full-time fundraiser. So Ketchum filled in the, uh, the hole there and would come in and bring an office set up. They gave them space, run the campaign, raise a million dollars or whatever it was in that community and say, we'll see you next, uh, next Labor Day. Mm. That's the way they did it. And it was uh, when I joined the company, they, you had a mandated vacation. It was two weeks in August. The whole company shut down for the two weeks before Labor Day. <laughs> and then we had a national conference at Penn State at the Nittany Lion Inn where the whole company came together and you got your assignments for the fall. And then a week later, you were flying or driving off to a new assignment for that year, for 18 months, or for like if you did a United Way. Blessedly, I never did United Way, uh, but it would be... Uh, you didn't know until you showed up in August where you were going to be three weeks later. That must have been a lot of pressure on you and the whole staff. I mean, people are going away from their families for extended periods. You yeah. you talked about this, about getting that one of those formative transformational moments, sitting in a bar. And many of people in fundraising uh, have been through the experience where it's social. Sometimes it's in a bar yeah. And, yeah. and it's yeah. usually on the road. That's a lot of pressure for these folks and on their families. What was that like for you? Um, it was difficult. Um, I, I will I will say that it was also a setup for people to develop some habits that weren't healthy. Uh, they were away from all their support systems. Mm -hmm. uh, alcohol came into play, uh, and there were when I was the CEO, there were incidents where we had to take care of that. We had to take care of people. We, we had I created an. Uh, uh, an EAP, an employee assistance program uh, with Gateway Rehab, which you know was outside of Pittsburgh. And because, you know, we we were perfect set up for people who had drinking issues mm. or just wanted to get away so they could cultivate that. And it's, I'm not saying they weren't great fundraisers, but they're often it was it was just that kind of lifestyle was conducive to the development of those things. Right. Um, yeah. And now people are much more. I think open about it, don't you? Than than they were then talking about these issues, giving people access to to um, whether it's rehab or just some kind of social connection that may have been missing when people were on the road all the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's really true. And you know, I had my issues. I I did rehab, and you know, uh, not a long time ago, and uh, I've I've had a clean and sober life since then. But you know, developing an understanding of that has made me a better leader. And uh, I have I have some pretty funny incidents where um, 
you know, so I, I remember one of our vice presidents coming into my office in Pittsburgh and, you know, it was coming into the big corner office, kind of, kind of scary place, even though it's just Bob Carter sitting there and uh, came in and was just frightened to death to tell me that they, they thought they might have a drinking problem, had missed some meetings and, you know, and most people can usually tell. But anyhow, I said, sit down and, you know, relax and tell me what's going on. And he said, I don't know how to tell you this. You're probably going to fire me. And uh, blank, blank. He said, you know, I think I'm, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, well, congratulations. So am I. And uh, I said, let's talk about that. And mm-hmm. uh, it was a moment. So I've had a lot of them. That must be, in a way, kind of a, a gift that you could give to these folks to give them the space. Yeah, I was given that, and and you know you want to you want to keep giving giving that back, and uh, that that was powerful. He went into rehab, got sober, and you know has has led a clean life. Unfortunately, he's passed away now, but you know died sober, and uh, that was you know when you're part of that, it, it's. Uh, and I, I told I told many people like that. It's uh, you know business takes care of itself. Let's take care of each, each other, and uh, the rest falls in line if you do that. Yeah. So that th- those kinds of things being a being a part of uh, leadership, I think, uh, have enhanced my ability to deal effectively with people and uh, and be understanding. Uh, because you know if if you can't have any empathy uh, with that. Um, sometimes you, you make the, you misjudge that and what it represents. And so I've done a lot of count. I'm, I'm, I sponsor people. I, um, and I ended up chairing the board, of course, of Gateway Rehab, which is where I got sober. I had this bad habit of chairing boards and that was one of them. That was one of the most meaningful boards I've ever been a part of, of course. So, that, that, uh, must be quite an experience because you can, uh, when you're talking to other people about supporting the organization, you can give testimony. Well, I, I, I'll tell you a little story about that. Uh, the CEO and I were, this was outside of Pittsburgh. So we're in a campaign to build a youth uh, rehab, which was for kids, believe it or not, you know, 12 to 18. Uh, we had 12 year olds trying to check into an adult rehab uh, with alcohol and issues. And now it's drugs, of course. Wow. As low as, as eight to ten year olds with uh, with habits, uh, and it was a real eye opener for me. And you know, the one time one time the medical director walked into a board meeting and said, "Let me tell you what I'm facing." He reaches into his pocket and he pulls out little packets of cocaine with all the Disney characters on the outside, and he said, "This is what they're marketing to the kids in elementary schools in the fifth and sixth grades." There's Dumbo the elephant, there's Goofy, there's all of these things that they relate to. Inside is little beginnings of little pieces of little cocaine um, crystals. And he said, this is the entry level that we're dealing with. Uh, But anyhow, uh, that aside, the CEO and I were, um, I agreed to go see the Pittsburgh Foundations with him. It's a powerful group of funders, the Pittsburgh Foundations. And uh, so, I opened, I would always open up the meeting. I usually knew the CEOs because I was the CEO of Ketchum and we were in Pittsburgh. And, uh, we, we all ate at the same place. It's a very small town. 
So I would say, you know, uh, Roger, thanks for taking the meeting. As you know, I'm the chair of uh, Gateway Rehab and Ken here is the CEO. And uh, I just, before we start, I wanna let you know, was it not for Gateway, I wouldn't be able to sit here uh, because I'd be dead. And that was my opener and, and I meant it. It was, it was heart spoken. And, uh, and that was the first disarming moment of the whole thing. <laughs> Because many of those people did not know at that point that I, I was um, an addict alcoholic. And so I was re self-revealing and all that sort of thing. And, I, and that was an important part of my recovery, to let people know that I was in recovery. But I was still the CEO of a company. I was still a functional person. And uh, I didn't live under a bridge. Mm -hmm. So that was a well, conscious I decision to come out about that. So. When, when you talked about getting into the career and it was somebody saying you can, might make a few more dollars, that was enough. Now you're, <laughs> you're all the way through Ketchum, you're chairing boards. I, I'm wondering at that point, you must have said to yourself at some point, what, what brings you the greatest satisfaction, especially when you had gone through rehab. And I'm sure you must have gone through some period of evaluation about not just uh, what the life were you leading, but life would you really ideally like to live? Um, so how did you eventually then marry these ideas and, and decide, well, I've, you know, I've done my thing here and now I wanna move on. And because you've gone from Ketchum now and uh, kind of restoring Ketchum and bringing things in and bringing things out and then eventually moving to changing our world and now funding, of course, your own firm. Uh, how did you decide to make that switch? A lot of people are in that path right now and trying to figure out how do I make the life I want to lead happen? Yeah. How did that happen for well, you? It, yeah, it was a combination of things, but it all comes down to values. And, uh, you know, the great thing about the space we work in is it's full of value. It, it's, you know, the work that our, our colleagues do on an institutional side is just, you know, what a joy to get up every day and know that you're going someplace that's going to help people. Mm -hmm. and, and that speaks to the human heart. There's this thing that I think is inside of everyone. Uh, some people don't know exactly how to articulate it or act on it, uh, but it's the need to help another human being and be part of something greater than themselves. Um, and so that that part of it has always been uh, the charm for me. If I could, you know, if I can get paid to do something that gives me such joy, why would I do anything else? Um, it also happened to fall into some of my skill sets of writing and I mentioned not being, I've never had stage fright, so I'll get up and talk. I'll try to articulate a good idea or a value in some way that's helpful and help others articulate the value uh, and do strategic thinking around that. Um, but I never, I never had any vision of I'm finished. Um, I've had visions of what I want to do next. And that was, that was value-based. And, uh, and I am a, you know, I'm a very, I would say I'm a very social, uh, socially liberal, and I'm uh, a conservative uh, economic guy. And so I like creating jobs. I think that's part of what has always given me pride. And uh, back to Ketchum for just a second along those lines, I never wanted to have a sales quota. And Ketchum in the old school days, you got your million or two million or three million quota. You know, very few people had three millions. I had a three one time. But I hated it being a number. Mm. So 
in my little creative mind, I said, well, I wonder how many people that's providing jobs for. So I used to, I did the head count on the average salaries at Ketchum uh, back in the support area. We had a big support operation, you know, with 200 consultants and 200 campaign, you know, more than that campaigns. We had maybe three to 500, three to 400 a year. Um, we had a lot of back office people. So I went around and figured out I was keeping 20 families in business. I was providing salaries for 20 families. And that was my goal. So I had to humanize the number. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say, oh, I just hit a million dollars. I say, oh my gosh, I've got 10 families who are going to have income next year because of what I just sold. And I always looked at it that way. So once I humanized my sales goal, I was okay with it. And so again, back to the job creation thing, I always thought that was a noble thing. The grandfather who was the prize fighter and the dropout of school in the third grade guy uh, taught me many times. He said to me, Robert, when he wanted to get my attention, I was Robert. Robert, I don't care what you do. You can be a street cleaner, but have the cleanest street in town. And he said, all work is noble. That was that was his line. All work is noble. And it's an honor to have work. Yeah. And uh, I've never forgotten that. I've uh, I've tried to be as sensitive to the person who's cleaning the floor as the person who's uh, sitting in the corner office and just sort of, you know, balance that out. And I'm pretty comfortable talking to either one uh, because we, we all put our shoes on the same way. And uh, you know, we all have our frailties. We have our strengths. And, uh, and we're all trying to get to the same place, which is to have a joyful life in one way or another with a family or without a family or however it works. So it, it doesn't seem, though, that cleaning one street, no matter how clean, was ever going to be satisfying for you because you you, you went from you know, working on Ketchum to, uh, of course, changing a world. And now your own firm has is, is grown quite a bit. I thought it was going to be you, but now it's how many oh, so people? Did I. Jay, so did I. I had. You know, and people ask me sometimes, how did you, I want a career like yours. And I always say, well, careful what you wish, because <laughs> I, I didn't really have a plan for it. Um, and I said, there, there are two bits of advice, so a couple of things I'll tell you. Um, and that is, uh, be open to talking to everybody about opportunities. <laughs> don't think that, uh, oh, I own, don't put yourself in a box. Uh, think broadly, think big. and I can tell you from my personal experience, I have never accepted a job I was 100% qualified for. And that didn't scare me because I figured I could figure it out. And I could also surround myself with people who were talented in ways that I might not be talented. And uh, the network is what saves you. Uh, and I really believe we don't do it alone. And uh, I've never done it alone. Uh, I get a lot of credit. Uh, but but there, I, that's to be shared with you know, dozens and dozens of people who make Bob Carter look good. Um, and there's nothing gives me any more joy than getting that note, that email that says, I can't tell you how valuable your staff member XYZ was. And, and that's that's where I shine inside. That's a that's really a good feeling uh, because I, I like to think that I can make pretty good choices on on folks like that. Uh, to be here. I can't remember your question. That's well, I was just 
asking about how you how you'd grown the firm. I mean, it seems like you always no. wanted to grow something. Maybe it's just natural no. inclination. Maybe it's desire. But you're now it's, over thirty people, I think. Yeah, we're up to about thirty-four. And it mm-hmm. started when I talked to Omnicom. I was working for Omnicom, you know, uh, through Changing Our World. And I'd been working in Europe for them and developing uh, a European platform for, for Changing Our World. Mm-hmm. And uh, got to know the Omnicom supervisor folks pretty well. And they put me on a, a uh, committee that was the acquisition committee. So there were five or six of us who went around and looked at companies to buy and made recommendations, signed the uh, you know, the non-disclosure agreements and all that sort of thing. And that was a real eye-opener on the types of companies that are out there. So I got to see a lot of different uh, models of companies. I started thinking, you know, boy, I never want to be part of a vertical company again um, mm. because it's 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 dead, I think. All the internal competition and all those things. So anyhow, long story short, uh, I was getting tired of flying to Europe every two weeks for Omnicom. And I got to tell you, it was a grind. And, you know, I'd fly to London where the office was, and then I'd be working in Paris, Munich, all these places, uh, new airplanes every day, trains, airplanes. Uh, but anyhow, it was it was successful. I did that for almost four years. And I, I told uh, the group in New York at Omnicom, I said, look, I'm, I'm tired of this. They said, well, you tell us what you want to do. I said, I want to have a uh, private practice. Uh, I just want a few clients. And uh, I'd love to stay involved with you guys because, I mean, Omnicom is a great company. They really take care of their, they own 1,200 companies. And they have Omnicom University. They do training. They, they really do. And it's like, you know, putting me over in Europe. Uh, Mike Hoffman and I had an idea, and they gave us $2 million to go to Europe and said, here, try it out. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, they believed us, and, and it ended up working out pretty nicely. Uh, but anyhow, I just I told them that's what I wanted. They said, well, they thought about it for a while, came back to me and said, well, that's what we'll do. But we still want you to be part of our acquisition visiting team. And so they uh, they ended up being a client of mine in my new business, which was really kind of nice. And uh, so what happened was, Jay, that uh, I called it Bob Carter Company. Actually, the original corporate name was of Council Philanthropy. Because I was sitting in my attorney's office telling him I'm going to create this LLC. And he said, well, what are you going to call it? I said, well, I don't know. I haven't even thought about that. And I said, I have to have a name. He said, yeah, you have to have a name. So I looked at his nameplate on his desk, and he was of counsel. So I said, how about of counsel philanthropy? And so he said, okay, whatever you want. But very quickly, uh, in talking to some marketing people from Omnicom, they said, you need to put your name on it because you have a brand. And so I did, and you know, they were right. The phone started to ring. And so two clients became four, four clients became six, and I started reaching out for help. So I reached back back into the pool of people I had a network with from both Ketchum and from uh, Changing Our World, people who were no longer there. And uh, I ended up you know, being able to bring a small group together but it got a little overwhelming. I called Steve Higgins, who I had uh, mentored at Ketchum, and he was so angry at me when I left because uh, you know, he thought he was going to work with me forever. And I said, look, we'll work again downriver somewhere. And so I called him and said, you know, how about it? This is a moment. I've got a little thing going here. I think we can grow it if you want. Uh, you're my only phone call. So think about it. Well, he jumped over. Uh, I gave him some equity in the company and 
uh, kind of the rest is history. That was 10 years ago. And, you know, we've, we've, we've been very selective about people we bring on. Uh, we try to do very, very good work and uh, it's worked out and, you know, creating an income flow for uh, 34 families is another thing that I like to do. Always yeah. have. You, so, you now you've got one particularly big project uh, that is very exciting. You do a lot of work, but this is with the World Health Organization and the, and the oh, foundation that you're building. Could you talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about that? That's that's sure. enormous scale and impact. Yeah, that was uh, you know that came as a result of my work in the Middle East and Europe. Actually, uh, I've worked pretty extensively in France and Germany and the UK, and then also uh, worked with the royal family in uh, Qatar. Uh, on a major campaign for Shikamosa. And uh, that uh, the people that I worked with internationally uh, thought I did good stuff. And so um, they were putting, the World Health Organization was putting together a, uh, an advisory committee um, two years ago. And uh, a good friend of mine in Paris, who was a consultant working with them on forming up the uh, the organization and had worked with World Health before, who had worked with me in Qatar with Shikamoza, called me and said, uh, you know, there are two two organ two people that I and I think that you should be on this advisory committee in uh, in Geneva. And I said, well tell me about it. And they did and I said uh, without hesitation, I said I'm in. Uh, because the committee was set up just to advise Dr. Tedros, the general director, on whether or not they should get into the high net high net worth market, because they had no portal for that ever. Um, and Dr. Tedros was new. He uh, is an incredibly talented Ethiopian guy and uh, the first person of color to be the uh, CEO of that organization. And he's just an amazing human being. And uh, I hate it when he gets criticized because I know him so well. But anyhow, that's part of the job. So anyhow, for uh, we started going to Geneva every few months. And there were, um, I think there were 12 or 13 of us, something like that. But I was the only Western fundraiser. By Western, I mean either European or uh, U.S. or the Americas. And uh, they, they had... Uh, uh, some people who had done some things from China, some other parts of the world. So I was sort of holding up the end there. And as a result, I did a lot of talking in the, uh, you know, I, I have a problem with that. I talk a lot. So I can't keep my mouth shut when I see things going in the wrong direction in particular. Um, so anyhow, we end up doing a lot of meetings. There's a very interesting sidelight between me and the Minister of Health Agencies in the UK. We we had a we, I was a revolutionary and he was the old mother country and we never agreed on anything. And uh, it was very funny because in one of the last meetings we had as an advisory group. Uh, oh, a year ago, I guess uh, a year ago, November. Um, the minister of those health agencies in the UK couldn't make it. Uh, I won't name the name, but it was Sir somebody uh, who a lot of people might know. And when they called the role, uh, the the chairman of the board, the person who's now chairman of the board, and I, who's he's Swiss, and we got along very well. But he uh, he said, you know, everybody said here, here, here. We're going around. 
Then he said, sir, so-and-so. And he said, I'll answer for him. He uh, has an excused absence. And he said, to the great delight of his American revolutionary. And they were they were naming me as the <laughs> happy that he wasn't there, which you know was funny because we went at each other a few times. Um, and it was mainly around timelines because you know the American way is to get it done. And the British way sometimes is to watch it happen over generations. And so we just had, it was so much cautionary stuff on his end. Anyway, I had a lot of fun with that. So one, uh, we were getting towards the end of that very meeting and uh, the general director, Dr. Tedros came in to hear kind of our final recommendations on this thing. And I got called on because I, I had been a little bit instrumental in uh, how this might work, job descriptions, a couple other things. Um, and uh, Dr. Tedros is nodding to everybody who's reporting in and all that. And after the meeting, it was late in the day, uh, I won't forget it, and I packing up my things, shaking hands with everybody, people whom I'll never see again, probably, because they had people like the Minister of Health in Iraq there. And, you know, it was really an eclectic group and very exciting to be around the table with them. Uh, but uh, Dr. Tedros sees me leaving and says, oh, can I walk with you for a second? You know, and here's the, the guy who's in charge of the whole thing. And he, I had an, I'd called an Uber. So I had an Uber outside, you know, on the way. And uh, he said, you know, I want you to continue with this. And uh, I said, Dr. Tedros, I'll do anything because there's no more important work today than there are two things, I think, world peace and world health. And I said, it's a huge part of what I would like to do with the rest of my life. And so uh, fast forward a number of weeks, I get a, you know, an official letter inviting me to be a founding member of the board. And uh, it was kind of a thrill to, you know, to get that. And I, this was all done pro bono. Uh, I was over there pro bono as an advisor. I wouldn't take any money for it because I felt like all of my career had brought me to that point. And that had long been paid for. I didn't need to get paid for that. Um, so when we get back to normalcy, uh, I'll have probably three trips to Switzerland every year uh, for our board meetings. Uh, we were putting together an incredible group of people from uh, the East, um, from uh, Asia, and uh, the Middle East, Africa, and so on. and. Uh, it's very exciting to watch this happen and to know that contrary to some of the rhetoric today, this is a group that can move the needle on global health. And we opened our, we opened our fundraising uh, during COVID, even though we didn't have the authority in Switzerland, which by the way, takes forever to get authority to raise money. So um, even with all the connections we have, so we used the UN uh, foundation portal to raise our first funds on the Singularity Fund over there. And it's, I think it, it's 380 million or something we've raised since uh, the end of June, 1st of July. Um, so it's already proven the model. Right. So it's pretty extraordinary. Thank you for asking. Well, that, that's been, it's been a little bit of a capstone for, for Bob Carter, frankly. I have to ask you, you talked a lot about uh, your father and your grandfather, but they come from a very different world. So they were obviously celebrating and uh, advising you pretty sternly <laughs> in your formative years, yeah. had a big impact. What do you think they would say about what you're doing now? 
Um, I, I would have to do some serious educating about the world today for them to understand. You know, it's really interesting you asked that question because I, I'm afraid that both of my parents passed away uh, without a full understanding of what I did. Um, the consultant thing, they weren't, they weren't consultant people. They were working people. And then philanthropy, I mean, they were generous people, but they weren't wealthy. They were volunteers in the community. That part of it they got. And I learned a lot about volunteering from my dad, who was a big community volunteer. And uh, they would, uh, they would, it would be difficult for them to understand the world the world has come today hmm. uh, compared to their world, which was uh, world, world War I, World War II, the USA, the best of the years in the United States and its economic growth, the 50s and 60s. They were part of that. Uh, and then to look at the world in a, in a uh, different lens as a more inclusive world, as, as a troubled world in many ways that, um, you know, they understood the kind of the anti-communism thing and all that. And, you know, I, I, had, a, I had a good dose, though. Of, it's really interesting because, you know, Maryland is really a southern town in many uh, southern state in many ways. In fact, there's a very funny story about Lincoln preventing Maryland from seceding because it was about to secede. And he put the legislators in jail for 30 days and he he citizenized, uh, made all the federal troops, 40,000 federal troops, citizens to vote against it in Maryland. A good friend of mine wrote the book about it. It's called A Southern Star for Maryland. Uh, Larry Denton, he wrote it. Anyhow, so it was a it was a world that I grew up in where uh it was a white world. Uh, we, ha we had very good friends who were African-Americans in our community, but they lived in an area that they were only able to live in. And, uh, but I grew up playing with African-American kids in the house because their, their parents helped out with our place. And so I knew all that. I played baseball with them. I didn't, I didn't understand the differences. It was puzzling as a young kid to know that we went to different schools. And this is when I was in public school, which was the first four years there. They had an African-American school and they had a white school in the same community. And, you know, I, and, and I was playing ball with everybody. It didn't, outside of the rig, rigid parts of the community, it didn't make any difference. And uh, there was uh, the Friday night fights with a mixed group in my house, uh, you know, so I, I didn't have the, uh, the anger over, um, I, I didn't see the racism in the same light that I think some other people had back then. Uh, it was more confusion for me. And, you know, I'm thankful that we, I was able to grow away from that. And then in my work, uh, first going to Johns Hopkins and then being a part of institutional work that was much more inclusive and, uh, you know, having friends of color and all that sort of thing changed my life in a, in a great, great way. But I'd been exposed to that early on. So there was a comfort zone for me with all of that. Hmm. So it, it was the whole world would be hard to explain to my granddad. He, he said, that, Bob, the only way I'll get in an airplane is if my foot gets hooked in something and they drag me up. Even, even, when, he, even when he did his trainings and things with dye making, he took trains to get wherever he wanted to go. Big, big train guy. 
So he didn't think you were supposed to get off the ground. That was unnatural. <laughs> and his grandson spent a lot of time in the air. <laughs> millions and millions of miles. <laughs> yeah. Bob, thank you so much for, for all this, for sharing all this today. Really appreciate it. LJ, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. And uh, look forward to seeing you soon. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.